You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have a really cool guest today, uh, Luis P. Villarreal. Um, he's long been interested in virus-host interactions, especially with regard to viruses that persist either in the genomes or epigenomes of their hosts. And for the last 20 years, he's focused his study on the role of virus evolution on life. Um, I find viruses uh, very strange and spooky and unusual, and I'm sure there's a lot more to know about them than just Oh, they make you sick, and they try to kill you. So that's what uh, we're going to talk about. So, Luis, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, thank you for having me. I'm doing very well. And uh, yeah, tell me, um, how did you first get interested in viruses? What uh, what what girded your interest? Well, that's a long story. Going back to my days as an undergraduate, uh, I was a chemistry major at, at uh, Los Angeles, and uh, taking a biochemistry class. And my instructor, uh, Dr. Andrioli, showed a picture up on the screen during a lecture of an infected cell. He was talking about more complicated uh, biological proteins and so forth. And in that infected cell, there was a crystalline array of virus in the cytoplasm of that cell. And in looking at that, it occurred to me that this is the interface of chemistry and life because these things can be crystallized, yet they are biologically very active very complicated in some instances. So that was my first uh, insight into sort of the interface of uh, virology and biology and chemistry, uh, hmm. uh, those crystals that were formed. So so how do uh, viruses figure in evolution? Well, What's I never... Your, uh, your, your, the grand thesis of it. Yeah, I never really uh, approached my study of viruses from the perspective of, of that role. I was much more... Virologists as a whole are rather pragmatic luck. Uh, they like to uh, do things like create vaccines and deal with disease or use them as models to understand pretty much all the basic processes of life. And I was definitely in that mold when I started graduate school in San Diego. But almost immediately, I started making some observations that were rather curious and difficult to account for by existing theory. And one of them was that I was working on these negative strand RNA viruses. These are viruses that resemble rabies and Ebola. They're, they're very useful for studying um, highly pathogenic versions of virus. So while I was studying this one, it, uh, it produced what's called a defective, a version of the virus that was missing most of its genes, but it pumps out a lot of uh, small regulatory RNA. And this regulatory RNA had a rather dramatic consequence because it would completely suppress the replication of the virus. And if you put this defective in an animal, you could uh, massively change the outcome of the infection to uh, from what is normally a very lethal infection to one that was inapparent and persistent. And this was sort of the beginnings of my head scratching. 
trying to understand how viruses affect hosts in more complicated ways. So the reason, me, you know, let's, let's start off with some of the basics. Like what does the public think about viruses? What are some misconceptions and what are some early things you learned about viruses that are fascinating, different, and interesting? Well, the, the public conception of virus is a pretty stark view that uh, they are agents of disease, uh, sometimes very nasty and lethal diseases, but uh, mostly of annoying diseases like colds and, and other uh, sort of transient infections. Um, and that uh, the objective is just to get rid of them and to cure yourself from their infections. This is the issue of vaccines, which gets into a whole other topic to the history of vaccines and social reaction to it. But uh, that pretty much is, they're bad things, right? Viruses are, are bad things. But uh, what really sort of changes that perspective is when you start sequencing the genomes of any organism, you find that viruses make up really uh, substantial components of it, and sometimes they're involved in some very basic uh, aspects of the host, uh, particularly in immune uh, functions. They uh, contributed uh, to these various capacities. So when we first sequenced the human genome, first we sequenced one of the small chromosomes because it was uh, easier to do in the 90s. And when that sequence came out, it only had something like 2,000 genes in it, that particular chromosome, but it had about 8,000 um, versions of some defective viruses. So it had a lot more how viruses. Do we, how do we know that, by the way? When, when we sequenced it, how do we know that this, uh, some of the DNA came from viruses? Oh, because viruses have uh, very uh, telling signature sequences, particularly the regulatory regions. They have, for example, in the context of a retrovirus like HIV, it has a very um, specific uh, sequence at its end called a long-term repeat that's uh, sort of crucial for the function of the virus, for its capacity to integrate, to, to make DNA, to uh, control transcription and translation, to package. These sequences provide very basic features for the virus, and they're very diagnostic. So it's not difficult to figure out uh, that bits of sequences in the chromosome uh, originate from viruses, and uh, there are lots of them, a lot more than people anticipated uh, when we first started sequencing chromosomes. So that's one big thing is I don't think people realize that, you know, part of our genetic code comes from viruses integrating their genetic code into us, and that being a sustainable and heritable thing, right? Yes, but not more than that. The scale of this is much more massive than people uh, appreciate. Uh, for example, just considering the, the retroviruses, and they have, as I mentioned, these sequence, uh, defining sequences called LTRs for long terminal repeats. Um, when you see a single LTR in a chromosome, that's the product of a more complicated event. In order for the virus to enter the chromosome to integrate, it actually has to have both LTRs and it has to have the RNA uh, in between of the virus. To create a single LTR, uh, that has to get deleted out. So a virus has to integrate its complete genome, and then you can delete out the rest and you leave back one LTR, and this is how they come into existence. But there are so many LTRs in the human chromosome on the scale of 200,000 that this means during the evolution of human DNA, the entire equivalent of our genome uh, was once uh, a retroviral sequence before it got excised. So this is editing on, on a massive scale. Yeah. To state that otherwise is. The human genome was quite large, particularly since it was filled with lots of stuff that doesn't seem to code for genes. But the, what is equal to that quantity of DNA was the amount of retroviral sequences that once inhabited our genome. So 
the entire content of our genome is equal historically uh, to how much retroviral sequence was once in there. What, what are some of the mechanisms sense. by which a virus would affect our genetic code? Can you, you know, without giving like too much detail, but a medium level of detail, how, how does this well, happen? This, <laughs> this becomes a very complicated question very quickly. Um, one of the uh, long-time uh, difficulties in understanding evolution of a complicated biological entity is to understand the origin and creation of uh, complicated networks that are involved in the control of an organism. Uh, for example, the network that controls the immune system has all these components to it that are interacting at various levels. So the, the difficulty trying to understand is how do you uh, originate and create uh, an interacting complicated network uh, using the accepted view of uh, individual fittest type or it's a sequential acquisition of errors that somehow fit into the function of the network and that you can build a network that way. But uh, it's always been a conundrum of logic and observation that uh, you don't see networks developing that way. They sort of come uh, from more complicated events uh, and typically associated with colonization of the genome with a, sort of a complicated set of defective viruses, retroviruses in particular, but other ones as well, and derivatives of them, like line signs and all these more uh, parasitic RNA-based elements. So, what's again, what's an example of one mechanism by which we think a virus could alter our DNA? Like, uh, literally, what happens? The, the virus goes into the host, and then what? The mechanism is the origin of placental species, you know, or the placental mammals. And um, an event that occurred, uh, you know, on, a, on an evolutionary scale, um, well after um, the invention of a mammal, which is the multi-tuberculates were around for a long time before a placental mammal emerged. And what's that associated with is a massive colonization and rearrangement of the genome uh, mediated mostly by various types of retroviruses. So if we examine, for example, uh, some of the crucial genes of a, a, a placenta, the associated with fusion of the syncytiotrophoblast, that gene itself is derived from a retrovirus, the envelope gene of a, re a retrovirus, but the regulatory region that controls it uh, is quite complicated and is derived from a whole family of retroviruses that are working together uh, to create the placental regulatory network. So then if you step back and ask, why would that be? Why would you be using uh, these parasitic elements to control such a complicated and important function in its host as a reproductive biology? Uh, I think you have to put yourself in a different mindset to come up with explanations that can account for that happening. In other words, the capacity um, to bear life young requires the mother or the host uh, to take in a foreign uh, biological entity, the embryo, and suppress its immune rejection and feed it and host it uh, for its lifespan. And that requires a lot of change from what used to exist before that uh, capacity emerged in evolution. And virus footprints are all over all of those functions. So but you can really make the case. And the immune suppression is not throughout the whole organism, but it's, is it, or is that wrong? Is it on a local level? Well, yeah, it's both. literally. Uh, uh, I mean, it... During pregnancy, uh, the immune system is adjusted in various ways, uh, more systemically, but also very specifically, uh, with having to do with exactly the trophoblast, that that uh, tissue that is uh, 
brought about by the action of an endogenous retroviral uh, envelope chain. So it's a very complicated story. I don't want to oversimplify because even just trying to understand the viral constituents of it is exceedingly complicated. And on top of that, it happens maybe 13 different times independently. So if you look at the viruses associated with the human placenta versus the mouse versus the rat versus various other uh, mammals, they're all distinct. Uh, And the patterns by which this uh, complicated system emerged is brought about by a distinct set of interactions with distinct sets of viruses. So it's not as if we shared uh, the viral entities with uh, some of our uh, mammalian uh, species. Uh, What really differentiated the origin of these organs has to do with the the specific nature of the kinds of viruses that were involved. Does that make sense? Okay, so, yeah. Well, I guess to put it simply, so how different is the placental mechanism and the mechanism by which the immune system is suppressed in people versus, you know, other placental mammals? In all cases, you have to emerge, you have to evolve this capacity, this capacity to express immunity, this capacity to feed the offspring, this capacity to isolate the blood supply of the offspring from the blood supply of the mother. And it exactly, it's that tissue that separates the two the mother from the embryo that is mediated by a very sort of clear uh, virus function interaction. That is the trophectoderm that's that's providing this interface that's crucial uh, for the biology of the fetus and the biology of the mother. And there's no doubt that viruses were central for the emergence of that capacity. That's one example I can uh, do. No, that's an amazing example that viruses could be responsible for that. That's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, but then you ask the question, but, why would they, why would they be involved in such a role? That doesn't fit with right. thinking that the virus is simply this agent of destruction and death. This has to do with the other thing I started studying uh, as a graduate student, and that is that it turns out that frequently when virus colonize a host, they don't have a disease relationship with them. They have a persistent relationship with them, and they set up an inapparent persistent state. They're basically symbiogenic with their host. And these are very common interactions. And occasionally, these things can go a different route and become pathogenic. Particularly, they can become pathogenic in other related species. So the viruses that persist in one species, for example, of shrimp, can be completely lethal to another species of shrimp when they come in contact with each other. This is true of lots of different kinds of species, of plants, of insects, of animals, of birds. Uh, This is a phenomenon we see all the way uh, going back to bacteria, the bacteria colonized with a particular kind of persistent virus um, can um, be lethal to a version of that bacteria that's not colonized with that same virus. So there's, this is where the dynamic of virus-host interaction really comes to play. It is this relationship of what you can house versus how that virus affects uh, the way you interact with other species. In a sense, some species can sort of reach out and uh, destroy their enemies or their competitors uh, when they come in contact with them. But just well, imagine but the survival value of, of not having uh, these uh, viral entities as part of your makeup. It would be huge. So you, you think the viruses are trying to uh, achieve... Um, They're trying to exi- Are they trying existence. to perpetuate themselves by integrating with hosts and yeah. upgrading their hosts, essentially? Is there's, that a, there's a whole, there's a much more basic way to think about all of this that is usually not even brought up, and that is that viruses are examples of uh, correct, coherent, 
and meaningful genetic code. They are not mistakes. When a virus gets into your body, that code has meaning. It compels certain right. things to happen. It's not just like a, a random walk of a, a mistaken sequence. And this has to do with the crucial importance of communication, particularly when you consider the communication of meaningful code for a biological entity. This gets back to the origin of the code and the nature of code and the importance, the fundamental importance of communication uh, for all life, including the origin of life, especially at the origin of life. So this is something we tend not to think about as biologists because we've been seduced, I think, by uh, information theory, which uh, drops the issue of meaning and just tries to assign function based on similarity. So that's when you get into, uh, you know, binary code analysis of, uh, of DNA. But we already know if I take the very same sequence of a virus, say a herpes virus, which most of us host, and I put it in one context, historic sort of uh, specific context of when it gets used versus another one. In one context, say if you acquire it as a child, it can end up in a trigeminal ganglia. It goes silent and it stays silent for your lifetime with persistent herpes infection. In another context, that same code, that same sequence, and it's a significant sequence because it's a pretty good sized DNA, about 100 genes, if that gets into your brain at the wrong time in the wrong condition, it's 100% lethal, particularly if it happens to be the herpes virus of a related species like like certain monkeys, for example. So that, right, to me, so, uh, this, this gets back to the issue of the importance of context and meaning for biological code. It's hugely crucial, but it's uh, not usually considered uh, when we can think about the analysis of sequence and the understanding of it. So viruses uh, sort of compel us uh, to think about, uh, you know, if, if you introduce a, an instruction as complicated as that of a large herpes virus mm. into the context of a, a newborn that has maternal antibodies, that really changes uh, what that information will, will do, whether it integrates or whether it causes infection or gets into the brain and causes lethal encephalitis. So history and context matter greatly. Uh, for the consequence of virus-host interaction. Well, I know, unfortunately, a lot of thought is based on the dogma of, like, the modern synthesis, you know, neo-Darwinism, random mutation. Yeah, and that is a whole other line of thought that uh, I'm not sure we're going to have time to develop. But basically, when I first started studying, remember I told you that phenomenon when I saw this defective virus able to massively suppress the infectious version of the same virus? Well, the master fit is type according to classical thinking, is the, the fully infectious virus. This defective really dominates biology of the master fittest type in a big way, like, like eight hogs worth. It's not a trivial situation. And right there, that tells you that a minority with the right communication can have a huge consequence to the entire population of that related species. So if you consider the master fittest type of that virus, it should dominate, and a minority is just a defective mutant that should be lost. That's not the relationship we see biologically, at least in the laboratory. Theoretically, the concepts were completely different. This led to a line of thinking called quasi-species thinking, in which the master fittest type provided the foundation of the mathematical model that led to um, trying to understand how populations of RNAs and viruses would function. But the experimental data gave us a very different story. Yeah, I, I know we don't have time to go into, you know, the neo-Darwinist theory and why viruses, you know, 
seem to completely contradict that. You know, I've done a number of podcasts with, with people that, you know, we've, where we flesh that out. And I know but, a lot but this gets back to this issue of, of networks and complexity and meaning and code. You can't really untangle all these things, even though we'd like to. Uh, because one of the things this line of thought led to was understanding that RNAs can work in uh, interactive groups, uh, in consortial sort of populations. So when you have the regulatory regions derived from an RNA capable of interacting with regulatory regions uh, in a different location in the genome, then you have the foundations of the network that's inherent into the behavior of that RNA. I don't know if that makes sense to you. So you're saying um, the code that comes from a virus or the code that's in our cells, um, I guess the, the it's emergent the RNA properties of it, or it, its instructions come from the networks well, of all the cells around it, not just the cell that that code is in for that moment. Yeah, the you, uh, the you RNA. Need... You have to think of RNA as distinct from DNA in the case that it's much more much more live. It's much more dynamic, interactive, capable of function, and capable of change and context dependent. DNA is sort of like a a hard drive where everything is stored, but RNA is sort of living function of the information. And RNA viruses really sort of lead us to this view, whereas if we focus on DNA, we come up with a very static view where the master fittest type and error-based evolution and all that. But when we start thinking about RNA as an interactive collective that has the capacity for protection as well as the capacity for destruction built into it inherently in order to hmm. define a group, uh, that could lead us to a very different picture in terms of uh, living functions that are very essential. Well, I think we think of, of DNA as, again, the instructions for everything that creates us. You know, it's, uh, I guess it is like, yeah, like a hard drive in the cell where, you know, uh, the cell goes to it for instructions on how to do everything in the cell. But are, are there cases where our DNA is not used, for instance, in the creation of a protein or not well, used in yes. the creation of a, well, of a function of the cell? I mean, is there a um, another place where it's not? The large majority of our DNA, on a scale of 98% or so, doesn't code for um, proteins or open reading frames. But most, much, of, much of that, a lot of it's derived from what are called parasitic elements, uh, like retroviruses and lines and so on. These are entities that function as RNA. Uh, this means that the, the large majority of our genome is really uh, existing as RNA transcripts that, are, that have very complicated and unknown uh, interactions with each other and with the environment. And so when we think of a phenomenon like uh, either developmental control or epigenetic control in which the DNA set is not strictly determinant uh, of what the phenotype is, of what's actually happening, what proteins are being expressed, what RNAs are being expressed, that depends on context and history. So all our cells have the same DNA, but they do vastly different things depending on the specific nature of the specific cell. And on top of that, there are historical uh, influences that can have epigenetic consequences in terms of what's going to happen. And some of these are very large consequences. And most of this is mediated at some point by RNA interactions and consequence of how the RNA is interacting with the DNA and with each other. So developmental biology and epigenetic control really operate through these kinds of RNA interactions that I'm talking about, uh, these little stem loop parasitic-like entities that we see in massive scale in the human genome uh, and are still trying to sort out how they function with respect to uh, complicated network control 
but these aren't these aren't open reading frames. Uh, these are the uh, the actors that sort of control it, the bosses of the open reading frame. And we're just now starting to sort out how this works. Can we um, can we talk a bit more about viruses themselves? So I want sure. to ask you about again the uniqueness of them and their role. And so uh, there's been a question well, of viruses, li living living things. Let's do you do believe a, they are, and do they have goals? Like what, what, let's do a, you know, a little thought about. experiment in terms of how they might affect human evolution, current human evolution. Because if you look out in the world for evidence of ongoing human evolution, uh, you don't really see a lot happening. Uh, yet we can if we look at this a little differently. For example, right now in Australia, uh, the koalas are undergoing what's called endogenization. That is, uh, they got um, a plague hit them, which was due to a retrovirus that was causing leukemias and other uh, blood tumors. Uh, but what's happening is that uh, this virus that was mediating this disease was becoming part of them. And as a consequence, their ability to deal with the virus and their immune systems were being changed in real time. This is happening now. So if we just use that as an example and consider a thought experiment with respect to human evolution. Uh, we now accept the idea that uh, human uh, retroviruses like HIV weren't really a historic part of human evolution on a long-term scale, that this is something that came into existence on the scale of 100 or 200 years ago. Um, but just imagine that we have a communicating population of humans, and we have no human science or culture that will intervene to alter the spread of this virus in the human population. Sure. What would we project be the evolutionary outcome? This is not a hard condition to imagine because if you know the existence of science and cultures that respond to infections is a relatively recent thing, right? On the scale of a few hundred years. So if we go back just a few thousand years, we're in a situation where it's completely possible we could have a communicating population and you introduce this new virus to them. And what we can sort of project at this point, what is likely to happen, is that the virus is known that it can become part of some people uh, without causing progression to disease called the non-progressor. That minority now has within it an entity that makes it lethal to all prior versions of humans. So we can pretty much expect in time that the surviving human population will have acquired this new endogenous virus, which has modified its immune system and modified its immune identity uh, to be able to deal with that virus, but it's also provided it with the capacity to be lethal to any version of human that doesn't have this entity within it. So to me, that just shows that these evolutionary processes are occurring in real time, and we can see them uh, even in human populations, but we're intervening uh, to prevent them, like Ebola. Here's another good example. This is a negative strand RNA virus. It's highly pathogenic and highly lethal. Are you still there? Yeah, so so you're saying viruses are a, a, a guiding hand in evolution for all creatures? Is yes. Is that the summation of this? But but that they're becoming part of their host has huge quanti uh, uh, consequences for who survives. It modifies the identity of the host, it modifies the immunity of the host, and it brings to the host an entirely new network that's now available for other uses. So, uh, you know, again, are viruses alive and what are their goals? Like, what has all this taught you about the virus as an organism? Well, viruses, I think of as the fundamental entity of biological communication, sort of the original 
the original version of biological communication that when we go back to the RNA world and we talk about uh, a form of life that uh, should have existed before the invention of DNA, we can see that viruses sort of adhere to the behaviors that we would expect such a consortium of complicated RNA entities to, to operate by. So in a sense, the virus is the communicating component of the earliest life forms uh, and that was essential. Uh, that the communication is not just a byproduct of biology, but it's essential for the origin of biology, for the origin of life to get going. Uh, and mm-hmm. viruses just identify this feature, uh, which at that point, I don't know if you could call them viruses, they would be like viroids or subviral particles, but they still function to transmit communication that is biologically meaningful and context and population dependent, that uh, it's not error-based, uh, as is the current view. So I really can't so, untangle. I can't untangle virus from life in my own mind. When when we think about viruses, do you feel like we're getting close to where agency comes from, and you know how life maybe could have arisen? Yeah, what we end up with is there is a secret to life, and that is life was a consortial uh, at its get go before we invented the individual fittest type, or any of that could even be uh, put forward. We had to have a collection of sub-functional interacting, uh, most likely RNA-based entities that together uh, provided uh, capacity to persist, live, and replicate, as well as to resist uh, other populations. So immunity, identity, collectivism, all that goes together at the very origin. So if we start to imagine uh, what it took to spark life, it was some kind of collective capacity uh, to interact, to replicate, and to recognize itself. Uh, and uh, That's a different sort of mindset than if we just tried to, um, by mathematical processes, define a master fittest type and then define its replication as whether or not it's error-based and whether or not it's gonna be fit according to the master fittest type. That's the paradigm we've been living by for a long time, but I don't think that works when we apply it. No, I know, I, I know I don't think it's error-based either, and I don't even think we need to at least in this conversation, you know, you're you're preaching to the choir somewhat, so I don't think we yeah. need to overcome that. I, I wanted to focus more on, well, let me ask you my next question. So when you look at viruses and then you include maybe prions or viroids or phages, um, yeah. maybe even bacteria or archaea, what, what does that tell you now about life and how it originated? The um, The real crucial component that ties all that together are these... Um, these characters of the RNAs that you find essential. For, remember, we talked about the LTRs being the essential component of a retrovirus. That's true of all of the viruses, right. all of the RNA and DNA viruses. They have these regions in which an RNA is produced that has a, an inverted repeat. It's kind of like a little palindrome. It's a, a snapback stem loop structure. And it is how these things interact with themselves and with each other and with their environment that really sets the foundations for what a virus does and what life does. So my view is that these complicated consortia of stem loop RNAs that we historically considered junk is really the um, dynamic uh, population-based agency that determines what happens, you know, what's alive and what's not alive and, and uh, what, what that information is going to do. It's also uh, the process by which learning and self-governance are attained because these things can be destructive as well as constructive. 
when we invented uh, the capacity of an RNA to be a ribozyme, we also invented at that same time the capacity for it to be an endonuclease. So not only will it put together, it will cut. And what it cuts and what it puts together is basically essential for defining the population that it exists in. So that's a very different mindset when you start thinking about how these it things is. get going. So how do you how do you think uh, life started? Well, obviously you had to have a an abiotic phase that was essentially chemical and physical and basically uh, mathematical that certain molecules in complicated circumstances. At some point, what has to happen, well, you have to invent RNA because we don't know of any other molecule that can, uh, that can sort of operate the way I'm thinking about. And that's, that's a difficult step in and of itself. But there are scenarios in which we can see that RNA molecules can come into existence in deep space and hydrothermal vents and various other places. A population has to uh, come in, come together, and that population then has to cohere. I call this a Gangan hypothesis, in that they have to form a collective, in which the collective is capable of replication of ribozymes, but it's also capable of destruction of the end nucleus, and this has to be applied in a way that uh, supports the population and opposes uh, other populations, even old versions of the same population, because it's a dynamic and learning uh, sort of entity. It's a self-instructing process. That, at that point, when it transitions to this collectivism, uh, this is sort of the beginnings of life. This is where we move out of uh, biophysical thinking to uh, meaning, communication, pragmatics, and context important communication. And I think that was essential for life to get going. Mm. So do you think that uh, life started at a certain point, or do you think it started multiple times and maybe failed and started again and started again and started again? And do you think well, I life do is think... starting right now here on Earth in certain places or on other planets? Uh, I don't know that we can rewind this. If you look at the, the particular circumstance that we think would have been important, it's not obvious to me that this is going to occur. Uh, any kind of uh, great frequency uh, randomly. Uh, you know, I can I can easily think that this is uh, such a rare event that we're not ever going to encounter another version of life in the visible part of the, uh, the cosmos that we can explore. But too many happenstances and, and the history and the context of what happened when, where, and how, and what the history of that was matters for all this to work. So it's not obvious to me that this is uh, a, a a very reproducible circumstance. Uh, not that it doesn't obey uh, sort of the physical chemical principles of its components that are put together, but just to create that that one population that gets going in a habitat that can support it, uh, so that it can continue to uh, to sort of explore the the evolutionary landscape and eventually attain all the things it needs. It needs a membrane. It needs metabolism. It needs uh, a replication, propagation, and you be protected from a, a harsh universe. Um, once you get to that point, it becomes very robust. This uh, sort of infectious, transmissible nature of uh, life and virus is very robust. You know, just try to get rid of viruses sometimes. You'll see that they're robust entities. You just can't uh, step on them very easily, and some of them are very difficult to eliminate. So this is an essence of life once it gets going. But uh, to get it to that point, uh, I think that's a very iffy a transition from, from chemistry to the invention of biology, to the invention of uh, meaningful communication. So I don't 
I don't have faith that this is a highly reproducible event. Whether it happened, there's evidence that it happened multiple times that it's very similar, like the different ribosomes. Ribosome is basically a collection of stem loop RNAs that are ligated together and function together in the context of making peptide bonds. Now, we know we have different collections of them uh, because there are different lineages, uh, but they're still very similar to each other, even though they don't share a whole lot with each other. So do you, um, since very little appears to be random, maybe nothing is random, do you think well, that there is a designer? Do you think there? I would say it's too dependent on context and history uh, for us to be very confident that we might be able to reproduce this. Well, do you think so, life had a designer then, or do you think it really arose from abiotic conditions? I don't. Just I don't have any confidence right. that there was a designer behind any of this, but it, it does seem rather miraculous. But it doesn't seem. Uh, it doesn't. Seemed like it was at the hand of design, as far as I can tell, because there's too many, um, too many things that could have gone differently. If you look at uh, sort of the evolution of a, the social human brain, there's only one species that has managed to accomplish this. Well, one living species, Homo sapiens. Uh, and if you look at all the quirky things that had to happen to make this one physically rather incapable species, humans compared to almost any other animal have become the dominant species of the planet by far. And it was what's going on in our heads. And a lot of this is mediated by exactly these kinds of interactions I'm talking about, by these small stem loop RNAs like line and alloy elements that we know are centrally involved in brain function, but we're still trying to figure out uh, how that happens and exactly uh, how it works with respect to things like uh, memory, cognition, and so forth. But that's a very quirky... Okay event. If we were to say every time we start life on this pathway, we're going to end up with that. I don't see any logical reason to think that that's inevitable. And if you were considering a hand of a, of some entity that we would call a god being able to control all this, it seems to happenstance to me uh, to work that way. Right. Well, I guess uh, skipping to a lighter note, I wanted to ask you this because it's kind of funny and I'm, I've been thinking about it as we talk. You know the movie uh, Resident Evil, right? The Resident Evil series, where they have like this T virus that causes people to become, you know, zombies that want to yes, kill yes, everyone else. Do, you know, do you think that's actually possible? Something like that? I, I know it's kind of funny to bring this out of the blue, but no, I wonder no, if they've actually funny. maybe got it right. This is culturally very prevalent, and you see it uh, reproducibly. It comes up. Uh, you know, I used, to, I used to work on rabies virus. I used to teach about rabies virus to medical students, and I always find it fascinating that uh, that the concept of a vampire is associated with the transmissible uh, bite of uh, something like a vampire, a vampire bat. Now, vampire bats are new world species, and they do transmit rabies. Uh, we know Transylvania is in the old world. Vampires are obviously old world species, but I've always found it fascinating how um, in all these contexts we come back to this concept of transmissible complex behavior like a zombie or a rabid animal, so forth. In fact, there is evidence that such a thing can happen in biology. Uh, and the invention of motherhood, for example, which is a complicated behavioral motif, uh, itself seems to have been mediated by viruses. But the particular example I like to point to is the one that was used uh, to sort of uh, make the movie the Alien, where you have uh, a, a species that is parasitic and uses uh, a host to incubate and reproduce itself. 
only to burst out and make more of itself, right? But that's the actual biological strategy used by the parasitoid wasps, which are amongst the most numerous animal species uh, on, on the land. They number in hundreds of thousands. But one of the very curious aspects of the parasitoid wasps is they house these in small endogenous uh, viruses. They're not retroviruses, they're DNA viruses, but they make a lot of stem loop um, RNA products which have not been characterized or studied almost at all. But what happens when the uh, wasp injects its egg into a host larva is that egg comes in surrounded by a paracrystalline array, almost the very first image I saw a virus, a paracrystalline array of endogenous defective uh, polyneviruses of various types. There's two major lineages of these things. And these things, once they get into the host, they transmit and they do basically everything we're talking about that was necessary to invent the placental species. They modify the behavior, uh, they modify the immune system, and they modify the feeding system of the host to support uh, the parasitoid wasp embryo. And in modifying the host, now the host is committed to die because these these uh, larvae are going to grow up and, and burst out just like in the scene from the alien. But right. while it's growing these things, the behavior of the of this uh, moth larvae has been modified so much that it will defend. It will defend these larvae that come out of it uh, against other species. So it's been its behavior has been modified to defend these parasites that it's making against themselves being attacked by other parasitoid wasps. So I think that's amazing. If you ever get a chance, go on the internet and look for pictures of one of these parasitoid larvae defending the larvae that have come out of it from attack by other parasitoid wasp species. Amazing. (laughs) That is amazing. Wow. So if they can do that, then, I don't know, zombie behavior doesn't in itself um, seem out of the realm of possibility. Although reanimating the dead. Well, you know, viruses in certain circumstances do seem to be able to reanimate dead hosts, but that's another story and very specific to unicellular organisms. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. But um, hmm. um, so, what what do you see as uh, the future between uh, humans and viruses, or other organisms and viruses? Do you are we well, I in think a certain direction, or what's coming? Do you think what's coming is a future in which, well, you think about artificial information systems and artificial uh, knowledge and codes and communications is one of the great banes of this entire system of processes are the emergence and existence of uh, things that are parasitic to them, viruses and various strategies. Uh, In fact, this drives, very much drives the evolution of operating systems because somebody's always coming up with some way to parasitize it and get information in and out of it that is not allowed, right? This is security, basically, uh, information security. At some point, uh, as we're trying to uh, construct these highly uh, parallel processors that uh, are capable of pattern recognition, which is everyone refers to as artificial intelligence, which I think rather a bit of a misnomer, but still their their capacity for pattern recognition is quite astounding. Um, At some point, um, there's going to be a viral element or component to this uh, because that's transmissive information that's capable of reaching out and re-instructing other entities. For example, if you consider trying to come up with a defense of a uh, U.S. information system uh, and one of the defensive concepts 
would be that you have uh, we've built in within it the, the capacity to reach out and destroy anything that communicates inappropriately with it. That's a very powerful uh, system of information defense, but that's basically a virus. Mm. And that would drive then the evolution of this uh, artificial uh, system of information and knowledge. And I suspect that that's kind of already happening, but we haven't formally incorporated it as an essential part of the process like it would be with a biological system. We don't think of a computer virus as being an essential component of the operating system of that computer. But in biological terms, we probably would think that that's the case. I guess uh, Norton and Kaspersky and McAfee have a lot to learn from real viruses. Well, we're, we're, we're so dedicated to trying to control information integrity. You know, like the individual fittest type, this is an informational integrity concept. This is the entity that has the best information and we need to reproduce it, protect it. And that's the, that's the paradigm that we operate by. And it would be a big shift to sort of come up with a highly parallel process that actually utilizes and depends on uh, this, this kind of behavior that we call viral. Hmm. So there's some huge implications, as you can see, from, from just starting with these little entities that uh, are a nuisance and sometimes more than a nuisance. Uh, but when we see what they're, how they work and how they operate through these uh, small regulatory RNAs, are very consequential you know, for everything, basically. And we see their occurrence in all hosts. Uh, that just provides us a distinct perspective from which to think about these things. What's the, um, the most amazing virus or phage or prion or viroid you've ever seen and why? What did it do? Well, I think those parasitoid species that we were talking about uh, are right up there in terms of, of amazing because they have reprogrammed behavior. And they have reprogrammed uh, a creature that to be, have basically motherhood-like behavior and protect its young. And how they do that, we don't know, but I'd, I'd be surprised if it wasn't via the action of these small regulatory RNAs that are being made by these defective uh, viral particles. Do you know anyone that's um, talked about the possibility that viruses can infect part of our microbiome instead of our somatic cells and how that might affect us? Oh, the, uh, the biome is really a virome. That, that most people don't consider. If you actually did just sample any habitat, like the ocean, ninety uh, percent of it is virus, and uh, just a small yeah. fraction is cellular. So, if you actually calculate the quantity of virus information in the oceans that exists right now, it's hyper astronomical, and it's turning over every day or two. So, the scale of information churning in the world's oceans is massive, almost beyond imagination. And, and this is all dismissed as just kind of junk that's floating out there. But these aren't errors, right? This is uh, this is code that has meaning in the correct context and has significant meaning uh, when it gets into the right habitat and the right host. So this is defining for us. This is, if you look at, for example, if you look at our gut, and people are very considered, uh, very concerned now with right. the, the microbiome, the virome of the gut is incredible. It's uh, it's well beyond, it's got like 10 to the 12th particles per mil of, uh, this is just viral entities outside of the, host, the cell, not even concerned with what's integrated uh, into the host, which is a whole other population. So those two interact, what's outside and what's inside is very consequential. So this is, like, that, um, this is like our microbiome in our gut, for instance, there's tons of viruses in there as well, not just bacteria. Oh, absolutely. And this has been known for some time. 
there, there's some people who study this uh, kind of as a hobby. I don't know that you get a lot of money for doing it. Well, you can actually because it turns out that if you want to manipulate uh, almost any bacteria on large scale, like lactobacillus for fermentation, for example, in yogurt and cheese and stuff, you cannot ignore viruses. And you cannot ignore the viruses that are in them and the viruses that are in the habitat. Because when you grow these huge vats, um, you have to engineer these these organisms to be able to deal with the viruses of the environment or they'll, they'll go away in a shot and you lose, you know, I don't know how many gallons of milk go into one of these huge fermentation vats. It's a quite an expensive proposition. So the Nestle Corporation has learned an awful lot about viruses over the years because they had to. Uh, and, and that's true of any professional biologist that grows any particular species, whether they're plants or cattle or fish or humans, that you really have to control and be knowledgeable about the, the viral circumstance in order to be successful. That's amazing. Hmm. It's, it's, it, it makes you wonder, how do we even cope with these systems that are so unbelievably complex? You know, if you think about it, what makes a person is not just their trillion plus somatic cells, but all the viruses in them, all the bacteria in them, all the other stuff and how they interact. It's mind, it's just, it's mind boggling. And the complexity of the, the networks that we start to think about, it's just beyond our ability. We don't even have the words or the concepts for these situations. Our language is, fails us because our language is this linear thing. And we're trying to uh, describe and understand complicated dynamic networks with linear language. I think we're, we're severely handicapped, uh, probably both. Uh, to a large degree, by the way, our language and brain works. But if you look, for example, at uh, our closest non-living relatives, uh, uh, like Neanderthals and Dysnovians, you see substantial changes with respect to their endogenous virus composition and what has happened during, say, human evolution from its chimpanzee cousin. There's been a lot of uh, endogenous viral changes uh, that are poorly understood, but almost certainly modifying networks uh, like behaviors brains, consciousness, that kind of stuff. Do you think that um, viruses are what cause speciation or massive changes in, in creatures over short spans of time? Yeah, I do think that that's usually the preferred mechanism to have a rather uh, significant change in the composition and network capacity of a host lineage. If you have two re it's identical lineages, one of them which is exposed to colonization by a sort of a complicated set of endogenous retroviruses, and the other one is not. And the one that's complicated uh, and sort of colonizes now put into a very dynamic circumstance of death and survival and the creation of a new immune system that can deal with that as well as the capacity to spit out and communicate entities that are toxic and lethal to its competitors. That's a huge consequence to the evolutionary trajectory of that host. So if we go back in time and we look at certain species that sort of never changed much when they came into existence, we see that their genomes sort of became static. If, uh, my opinion is if you make too effective of a genome defense system, then you get locked in to the solution that exists at the time for like trilobites and things like that. And, and you don't see them uh, sort of go beyond that. But everything else will overtake them and eventually displace them. So you can't be too immune to genetic parasites or you, you, you sort of cut off the more complicated uh, creativity that comes with that, the capacity to form complicated networks. Huh. This is amazing. I, I think it's a really cool conversation. I'm, uh, so 
I could probably question you for 10 more years, but I know you're, you're close to me at a time. What, you know, for people that want to take this further and learn more, and I'm going to be one of them, what are some good resources? You know, what are some publications there's you've no, written or that you could recommend or videos? There's, there's no real great compilation that touches on all the things. Um, there are some things that I can recommend. There was a book I brought a while ago, The Origin of Group Identity, uh, which sort of examines um, the more consortial requirements of living entities and, and how how they come into existence and what is likely to be the viral role in it. And that traces through much of what we've discussed, but it even that doesn't cover everything. Um, there is a handbook on astrobiology that's coming out uh, by Vera. Um, it has some, some interesting chapters, one that I wrote, the one that Gunther uh, Whitsony, uh, who really changed my perspective because he brought in the whole issue of uh, communication requiring uh, meaningful code and being context dependent and pragmatics and all that. This is an aspect of thinking in biology that, you know, I was completely unaware of until he brought it to my attention. So what he has to write with respect to the origin of life, he has a chapter in that astrobiology book. Um, but, I, you know, there is no compendium that, that uh, I could refer people to. The book I wrote is a bit out of date, although it's not that bad. Um, the things I've published touch on much of this and much of that is available. Uh, the other author, uh, you know, we haven't even talked about a whole aspect of this, the giant DNA viruses that are the uh, found. In, there's a whole family of giant DNA viruses that you find in uh, okay. unicellular eukaryotes. And there, that's a, another very fascinating and uh, sort of mind-boggling story because uh, these, these viruses... Oh, can, we, can we talk about that for maybe five minutes? Well, yeah. When uh, when I was in graduate school and learning virology, you know, we thought the, the most complicated viruses were those that were a couple of hundred genes long. Uh, and it wasn't until the 90s uh, that uh, various French groups discovered the existence of these megaviruses, these things that have uh, over a thousand, one thousand, two thousand genes, um, and they're more complicated than some unicellular organisms. And the when they infect cells, they do some amazing things. For example, they make what seems to be an artificial nucleus that uh, is a virus factory uh, that will produce a lot of viruses. Yeah, but they, uh, they have a lineage and a complexity that's uh, a morphology that's unlike anything that we find in virology. So this is a whole other domain of virus. Yet they infect the simplest of eukaryotes. Eukaryotes with just uh, one cell. Uh, why would you need? such massive, complicated DNA viruses for a host like that. So that, that sort of opens up a whole line of thinking in, uh, with respect to their origin and their role in the origin of eukaryotes and the origin of the nucleus and things like that. Um, but hmm. from them, we okay. see some of them have ribosomes and have ribosomal components. And people are arguing about what the significance of that is. But the definition used to be that a virus was small and filterable and didn't encode ribosomes. That definition doesn't seem to hold up anymore. So our definitions of viruses and somewhat fluid still. Um, but that's just one domain that is exceedingly fascinating. Uh, and there have been a number of reviews written, especially by uh, there's three French groups. I don't know why that's so restricted to the French scientists, but uh, there's no scientist in America that I know that, that really studies that family of giant viruses. Hmm. Okay. So, Luis, it's been... Uh... It's been a great call. I really appreciate you coming and uh, 
I guess I'd like to know when's your next book coming out that summarizes oh, a lot I, of the stuff we talked I, about. I, when's your compendium coming? Yeah, that's not going to happen because uh, one of the reasons I was forced to retire, I had uh, some serious uh, vision issues occur with respect to uh, retina. Uh, I'm sorry. Retinitis, and I had a whole series of uh, surgeries and so forth. But anyway, my reading capacity is really uh, much more restricted than it used to be. I used to read uh, in order to come up with uh, the, the, these views and evidence to support them. I had to read vast amounts of literature, which I can no longer do. So it's not really likely that I can compile uh, existing evidence in support of any of these lines of evidence beyond what I've already compiled. I, I'm working now with a couple of colleagues who do that work on my behalf, but all I provide is sort of the perspective and the historic view that I've developed. Um, I'm not really able to dig into the current literature uh, with the detail and scale that I used to because it's massive and it's dynamic and it's very specific and it's not readable by most people. Uh, mm. So the compendium is not a likely thing to happen beyond these kinds of conversations and overview things that I occasionally put together. Okay. Well, I'm honored that you came here, and, and I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah. it's been great. Thank you, Luis. Yeah, you're welcome. And I, I hope I put a little virus in your brain. <laughs> Very good. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.